I am so excited about this study. I know I say that a lot, but I do get excited easily about God's Word. Revelation chapter 22. I'm excited for you. I'm really excited for you because, and myself as well, because I believe you're going to leave here thinking, man, help me never to doubt your word, Father, because it is so obviously true, you know? Uh, unless, you know, you come in and you just put kind of your fingers in your ear and you don't want to see truth, but why would you come then, right? If you want to say, okay, what is God doing? What does God's word say? Uh, what does he expect of me? Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We're picking it up at verse 4. And we will be looking at 4, 5, and 6 this morning. The name of this series, and it's a little mini-series, we'll see, maybe two or three studies long, is called 12 Powerful Reasons to Trust Your Bible. I mean, I was like working on different titles, praying and seeking the Lord, and I don't know that I, I got an answer, <laughs> but because I was going to make it 12 irrefutable evidences. Well, really, it was less than that. I did a series 25 years ago or so with, you know, over 20. I've got a book I've been working on with 50 reasons to trust the Bible. So I was like, Lord, where do I limit this? Because I don't want this to be a three-month series within Revelation, but I also don't want to walk away with major meat on the bone with people, because I haven't done a series like this, I thought, for a long time, you know? When's the last time I did a message even like that, you know? I'm always proving, showing proof for God's Word. I'm always doing apologetics up here, as you know that, but a series on why to trust the Bible. So uh, I settled on 12 reasons to trust your Bible. And my original intent was to get all done in one message. But when I was just looking at, like, the archaeological evidence, some stuff that came out this year with the curse tablet, I'm like, Lord, I want to show pictures, and, and I'm going to get just into that. That is just too amazing. But I'm like, oh, that's going to take up a third of my message right there. You know? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can just give it real quick. No, that's not going to do it. And it's been on my heart to preach a whole message on that, but I'm like, just going to make it part of a message. So I end up with 12 reasons, and we're going to get rid of, uh, rid of, <laughs> we're going to get uh, uh, through about uh, three of them, hopefully, uh, this day, and still get out at t on time. And by the way, uh, on time in our fellowship is not exactly to the minute. It's two or three minutes before, like my last couple messages, or two or three or five minutes after, like my thousand before that, okay? <laughs> and even longer before, before we started dialing it back. And our services, if you look, they were, several, they were a lot longer uh, than they are now. And then we went longer. So you guys got it easy, you know? Uh, but praise God, we're still getting into it. So chapter 22 and we're being stretched and we're growing. Verse 4 through 6. And we're talking about God creating the new heaven and the new earth. I'm not even going to read the verses before because I'm so concerned about making sure I get this in. Uh, I, Lord, help us. Contain me, Lord. I'm so excited about this. Verse 4. They will see his face. So in New Jerusalem, when we're in the new heaven and the new earth, and we're in New Jerusalem, which comes from the earth and lands, or comes from the heavens and lands on the earth, literally heaven on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Boom. It ultimately happens. I mean, it happens at his coming in the sense that he established his millennial kingdom, but now he is here reigning uh, for all eternity. And we are with him. And verse 4 says, they will see his face. Wow. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because when I was looking at these verses, I'm like, man, we've covered a lot of this in... Revelation 21, the next parts of these last next two verses, because we've talked about being in God's very presence, amen? In, his, in the glory of his light, no more sun or moon, no more night, and the light comes and emanates from the Father and the Son, right? And we are basking in their very presence. And we talked at length about that, but I will say, make a couple points about this because they will see his face. Uh, that is huge, I wrote a song about the seraphim and the cherubim and how they bow before your throne. And then it was the chorus was, I, uh, we, we, and we just really kind of rang out, you know, we, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to see his face. We're going to be in his presence. And that's a big deal to see his face. I mean, how many people get excited when they see a celebrity and they just, if, if somebody sees a celebrity walk through Simi Valley that's a really popular actor, people be on the phone, people, get out of there, you're freaking out. I know about celebrities, so I don't really freak out. 
I'm more likely to pray for him, you know. You know, not every one of them is the same, but just look, listen to our last podcast about Ezra Miller, the star of Flash, especially if you've seen our videos on Marvel and how he has a sex cult and he has an altar and he's going to be in the movie Flash coming up unless they can him, but they pour $200 million into that movie and they don't know what to do because he has an altar where he puts figurines of Flash and he practiced chaos magic. That's what Crowley was known for. Just like, remember Robert Downey Jr.? Bowing before, you know, his altar with pictures of Iron Man to hopefully get the part, saying he practiced. If Aleister Crowley, the Satanist, had a little brother, he said, if Crowley had a brother or a uh, son, he said, I would, that would, I would be the blank, you know. This is heavy stuff that's going on, guys. We wrestle like it's flesh and blood. It's a spiritual war. And he's been with girls. Uh, there's been protection for girls as young as 12 years old, showing bruises on some of the gal's arms. He's been he's accused of, there's actually videotape of him strangling uh, trying to strangle people, going, you know, it's, it's heavy. You can listen to the podcast that Ted and I did on Good Fight Radio last week to get more depth on that. But people get all excited about these celebrities, you know, and they're just one of billions of human creations, right? But what about the one who created them and everybody else and created the entire universe? We're going to see his face Okay, no wonder John fell down to worship an angel two different times and was rebuked. Don't worship me. Worship God, you know. Once an elder, once an angel. Wow. Don't misinterpret that. I wasn't saying once you're an elder, then you'll be an angel. That's not what I meant. But once he bowed before an angel, you know, once an elder. Okay, so anyway, what's a trip about this is we're going to actually see God's face. And in biblical times, you couldn't see God's face. The children of Israel, even though God had approached them, they were terrified, you know? We don't, want to, we don't want to see him. Moses wanted to see God's face, but God put Moses in a cleft of a rock to protect him and only showed him his afterglow. And that's when Moses talked about his loving kindness, his goodness as he's seen his afterglow. Probably a, a fragments, or if you could use that crude terminology of his light or what have you, just tripping out, you know? And the scriptures say, who can dwell? The Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light. And the Bible says, who can dwell in everlasting burnings? We couldn't dwell in his presence because we are fallen human beings, right? We're sinful. We deserve the wrath of God. Amen? But we'll be in his actual presence. You see, the Bible says no one has seen God or can see him. Not in this present state we can't. But here we see that we will see not just him, but we will see his face. He dwells in unapproachable light currently, 1 Timothy 6, 16. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace by it that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear or awe. For our God is a consuming fire, 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Wow. But guess what's going to happen in the future, you guys? Who could dwell in everlasting burnings? Who could dwell in the very presence of the light of God? Those who've been redeemed. Those who've been born again. Amen. Those who've been made new creations by the power of the Holy Spirit. Job, the, perhaps the first book of the Bible written. It's disputed. We don't know for sure whether Genesis was written before Job or not. Uh, but in the book of Job, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Wow. The psalmist writes in Psalm 17, 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Think about that, guys. The consummation of all of our hopes, amen? Jesus stated in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. Just amazing. Now, in verse 4, it says, you'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Does it mean his, our names will, his name will be on our foreheads? This is the opposite of the mark of the beast, amen? Where those who take the mark of the beast take 
666 or the name of the beast on the right hand of their forehead to buy or sell. What does this mean? This speaks of ownership. You have a right, you have your name on anything that you own? Anybody have a mortgage here? How many have your name on your Bible? Anybody? Why do you put your name on your Bible? Because you own it, right? It belongs to you. Well, you didn't even make that Bible, but you own it, right? Well, God made you. <laughs> Amen. He owns us twice over. He made us in his image, right? We fell, we rebelled against the Lord, but then he became a man and bought us through his shed blood on the cross. Amen. What an awesome God. So if you, you know, you're going to be owned by someone. You didn't make yourself, even though sometimes we want to pretend we did, you know? God made us. Well, now let's look at verse 5. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. We've already taken up all these thoughts previously, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time reiterating them, other than to say that, guess what, man? God's presence that we couldn't go into, the high priest could go into his presence one time a year after the proper sacrifices were made. He'd go into his presence, but he still wasn't enduring the fullness of his presence, right? In fact, if you looked at the Ark of the Covenant, which was an expression of his presence, you would be wiped out. You could be killed. Well, remember the Ark of the Covenant? We talked about the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. Perfectly symmetrical. We looked at the measurements and the, and the same measurements as far as it's being perfectly symmetrical is what New Jerusalem is shaped like. Amen. We're all going, the, whole, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Holy Place, not the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Place itself was perfectly symmetrical. Amen. A picture of New Jerusalem. Amen. How exciting is that? And we're going to be in New Jerusalem with cascading light coming from the presence of God forever and ever. And we will reign, how long does it say? Forever and ever. We talk about reigning with Christ for a thousand years in the millennial period. That's definitely going to happen for believers. But we also, after the millennial period, will still reign with him forever and ever. And that ties in as I tied it in. We've already looked at that as well because we're talking about how the verses preceding this say that we'll serve the Lord. Amen? So we're going to serve him forever. We're not going to be bored. And you want to get a picture of what that can look like to a degree, you look at the first human beings tending the garden. Amen? Numbering the animals, tending the garden, be fruitful and multiply to the earth. And by the way, Christians should be the most environmental friendly people on the planet. Amen? Because God, God bless you, because God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? In fact, we don't look at the earth as just something that just evolved and is a big accident of some cosmic burp out of nothingness. It actually matters, not just for our own, so I can survive, or my kids can survive, but because it was created by God, amen? So Christians that don't care about the environment and so forth, uh, oh, pfft, oh, no big deal. That's, that's ridiculous. However, you have to be careful that you don't play politics and you watch out for those who use the environment to play politics and steer you in certain directions, amen? We don't worship the creation. Because what's happening right now in paganism is the worship of Gaia, the worship of the creation. And God warns that they worship the crea creation rather than the creator, Romans chapter 1. We worship our creator, amen, not the creation. We don't worship ourselves. We worship, we worship and serve. And worship means serve. It's synonym for serve. We serve the one that made us, amen. Now, it's interesting, picking up at verse 6. Can you believe we're already at verse 6? Man. It's the fastest I've ever gone through two verses in Revelation, I think. At least it's close. Verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the, Lord of the, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Notice we're called bondservants again, just like we were in verse 3. We're slaves to God, amen? It's awesome. His servants. They, uh, the, he's showing things that must take place. I want to emphasize the first part of verse 6. And he said to me, these words are what? Faithful and true. Wow. The word of God, specifically addressing the book of Revelation here, is faithful. His words are faithful and true. Not a lot of faithfulness and truth in the world today, is there? His words are faithful and true. In fact, go and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. 
Revelation chapter 3. And look at this title of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14, he's addressing the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He's the one who began all of God's creation. Says this. So Jesus is called the faithful and true one, amen? Now go to Revelation chapter 19. That begins the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches. Then you go to Jesus Christ's coming, when he comes back in glory, in his second coming to rectify and rule in justice and truth. In chapter 19, we read this, verse 11. John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called, what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Wow. Now go back to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Well, that makes sense because Jesus is, uh, you know, repeatedly called the faithful and true witness. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to give unto his servants to show them what would come to pass, right? So this is a faithful and true witness. How can we know that the Bible is a faithful and true witness and that Jesus is the faithful and true witness? I know before I was a Christian, I mocked the God of the Bible. I mocked the Bible without, what, an arrogant, dumb kid, without having read the Bible. I probably hadn't even read a page of the Bible. I was mocking it because my rebellious attitude did not want to even think about being submissive to God. And I'm not going to give my testimony except in 10 seconds. I continue to rebel against God. I opened myself to the demonic world. I found out that it was very real and it's very hostile and evil and everything became antichrist in my life during that time. In the midst of one of my supernatural experiences, I cried out to God. He delivered me from it. I realized, wow, God is true. And I opened this book because this was the book and this was the God I was attacking. And when I cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ, I was instantly delivered. Absolutely mind-boggling. So I realized, hey, that's a testimony that Millions of people have hundreds of millions through the years in one way or another. I didn't find deliverance in anything I was trying to do. I just got deeper and deeper until I cried out to the Lord God. And then I began to open this book and it began to speak of a spiritual reality, that there's a spiritual world, that there's good and evil, that God has a plan, that, that there's a reason that we have a sense, uh, a conscience and a sense of right and wrong and a sense of justice and injustice because we're created in the image of God. And you know what blew me away is I started to see prophecies being fulfilled that had been fulfilled and were being fulfilled. And I'm like, what in the world? This God has revealed himself. And it says that God's word is foolishness to those who perish. God knew people wouldn't want anything to do with him. And they just, oh, it's the Bible. Oh. And that's how I was before I knew Jesus, when I was perishing. But you know, guys, I want to encourage you. I want to look at some of the evidences that the, that the Bible is the word of God. And one of the evidences that I love the most and I'm going to head off with this one. And, I'm, and if you told me to pick my five top evidences, which is what I first set out to do and have one message, I couldn't do it. It's like picking kids and grandkids, which are your favorite. You can't. You love them all, you know? And you love certain things about them in different ways, right? Wow. I was like, man, Lord, I'm stuck. There's so many good ones here. And just pray this doesn't become 50 good reasons to trust your Bible. Okay. I don't want to do overkill, but I want to get you excited about God's word and give you reasons to not only for your faith to grow, but to share with your friends. Amen? I believe God calls us all to be apologists to one degree or another. First Peter chapter 3, we're supposed to always be ready. Dresses that not to pastors and elders, but to Christians in general to give an answer for those who have the hope, that's, for the hope that we have in us. Amen? So we all should have answers. But the unity of the Bible, the unity of the Bible it blows me away. Because this book was written by 40 authors. 40. If you count their secretaries and so forth, you could say over 40. Wow. But guess what? It was also, it's comprised of 66 different books. You could say 70 because the book of Psalms was made of five books. I like that, 70, you know, better than 66. But you could say 70 books written by 40 authors and 
70 books, if you count Revelation or Psalms, it's five. And guess what? Over a 1,500 span, year span of time. In three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. In all types of regions with all types of people that God used from fishermen and, and, and shepherds and prophets and, and kings like King David and, and, and apostles. And, and guess what? The unity of the Bible blows me away. This is what blew me away is when I began reading the Bible as a new Christian, I began studying the New Testament. Then I began reading the Old Testament and I was realizing, wow. And then I was reading the first chapters of Genesis, but I had already read the book of Revelation. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I was blown away because of the symmetry and the unity, and it was one cohesive book. An Old Testament law given by God after he made a covenant with Abraham first based on faith and that he would use that law to bring people to faith so they'd see they can't keep his law, but he would send his Messiah to save them the lawbreakers, which was all of us ultimately, but first the Jews. But it wasn't just about the Jews because even though people were so tribal and racial, God said, I'm choosing you, Abraham, and I'm choosing the Jewish nation, not as an end, but as a means to bless all the nations. And in New Jerusalem, all the nations are together. People from every nation, kindred people, and tongue are one. So different than the religious books of the Bible, which are so tribal. Or the religious books, I'm sorry, of the uh, pagans, which are so tribal. God promised that he would bless all the nations, Amen. And, and I began to look at this plan. I thought, wow, and this is a crazy thing, you guys, is when you just read the first few chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and then you go to the very last book of the Bible, which we're in, the last few chapters, good time to have this message. You have, you know what happens in a really good novel, you know, is you have basically some rel some similitude at least of peace some kind of peace and then all of a sudden problems emerge and then there's chaos and friction and then by the end of the book in most good novels there's resolution there's peace uh the, things come together in some way not always but often the novels that people consider often the most memorable well guess what the bible does it starts off with total absolute peace in eden then there's chaos in the first few chapters that ensues. Then there's the fall of man. And then there's death and destruction. A loss of paradise. And the rest of the Bible is marching toward the last few chapters of the Bible where there's total resolution. There's no more chaos. There's no more death. And the curse is reversed that they fell under in the first chapters of Genesis. Amen? And what's a trip about this is I can tell you right now, if you took 40 people that are not alive over a 1,500 year span of time, you just got 40 people together and you talked and you conversed with each other even and you had a plan to make a book together, right? Let's all write about the same thing and let's say these kinds of things. And then you all went to 40 different places around the earth and then you all wrote your thing and you put it all together and you said, this is the word of God. Guess what? It would fall flat on its face. Think about that. But we're talking about over 1,500 year span of time, three different languages, right? From people as diverse as, you know, tax gatherers and fishermen to shepherds and kings, right? And then you have this one beautiful, and there's all these different genres, you know? There's the historical narrative, you know? There's letters and truth in, in that respect. There's poetry, you know, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and so forth. There's moral teaching, and it just all goes like this. I mean, I was just reading from Job. Who's Job? He just comes on the scene and there's this big book about Job, but he's talking about his redeemer that lives, that he's going to see in the last days when he awakes from the dust because his redeemer lives. And there's all these pictures of Christ and typologies. Man, don't even get started in typology because that's not one of the reasons today. But there's all these types that you can't even get rid of. I love that because liberal theologians don't know what to do with typology. It must just be one big accident that all these things point to Christ. no. Now, so I think it's very important when we look at the, the unity of the Bible. And let me give you some examples. When we look at Genesis to Revelation, just comparing the first parts of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, look at how you have paradise lost and paradise restored. And look at all the crazy 
parallels that are just a blow mind that show you we're talking about one perfect message. In Genesis, you have a division of light and darkness. In Revelation 21.25, that's in Genesis 1.4. In Genesis 21.25, you have no more night and darkness. In uh, Genesis, you have a division of land and sea. And in Revelation 21.1, you have no more sea. Okay? Uh, that's in, you have the rule of the sun and the moon. In Genesis 1.16, you have no more sun and moon in Genesis chapter, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, 21.23. Uh, the first heavens and earth are finished in Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3. But in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, there's a new heaven and new earth. Okay? I love this material. Genesis 2, 8, and 9, man, is prepared, man uh, prepares a garden. Uh, Genesis 21, 2, at the end, there's a garden city prepared by God for the, the people in New Jerusalem. Amen? Uh, in Genesis 2.10, there's a river flowing out of Eden. In Revelation 22.1, there's a river flowing from God's very throne. Amen? In Genesis 2.9, the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. In Revelation 22.2, the tree of life is throughout the heavenly city um, uh, along the, the uh, water of life that comes from God's throne. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, there's gold in the Garden of Eden. Well, is there any gold in the garden city? Streets of gold, Revelation 21.21. 21. Bedellium and onyx stone in Revelation 2, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, 12. There's all types of precious stones as we've discovered in Revelation chapter 21, verse 19. In Genesis 3, 8, God is walking with his human creation, sharing fellowship. That fellowship is broken, but in Revelation 21, 3, God is dwelling with his people who will see, as we've seen, his face. In Genesis 1, 2, the Holy Spirit is energizing, right, and bringing creation forth. Uh, in Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit of God is inviting people to come and partake of living water and to have a vacation, a, a new life in New Jerusalem. Uh, in Genesis, 20, or Genesis 2, 21 through 23, the bride is formed uh, from her husband and for her husband. Uh, Revelation 21, 2, the bride's adorned for her husband, and she's brought forth earlier by her husband. Uh, in Genesis 1.28, humans are commanded to be fruitful and multiply, right? In Revelation, last book, last chapters, the nations are saved and bring their glory into New Jerusalem. In Revelation, or sorry, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, the garden is, uh, uh, of Eden is, they're found to be the father of lies there, amen, Satan. In uh, uh, Revelation 21, verse 27, no liars are allowed to go through the gates and enter into the heavenly city. In Genesis 1.27, God creates man in his image. In Revelation 21.3, man is in God's very presence. Uh, in Genesis 2.17, man is on probation before God. In Revelation 21.7, man is an heir of the Lord God. In Genesis, or, I'm sorry, Genesis 3.17, the ground is cursed in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, which we studied recently, there is no more curse. Amen? Uh, in Genesis 3.17, there is sorrow because of sin, and it will be daily sorrow. And it is as we look at this world. And that's why we have tears. In Revelation 21.4, there will be no more sorrow, it says. Uh, man works by the sweat of his brow, sweat of his face, Genesis 3.19. Well, there's no more tears, Revelation 21.4. Thorns and thistles come up in Genesis 3.18, Revelation 21.4. There is no more pain. Wow. They eat the herbs of the field in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. Well, Revelation 22.2, are there things to eat in New Jerusalem? Tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit, and that's just part of it, you know? Uh, in Genesis 3.19, they return to the dust. In Revelation 21.4, there's no more death. In Genesis 3.21, God provides coats or skins, animal skins. Uh, uh, Revelation 19.14, we have fine linen, white and clean. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, Satan opposes God. Uh, Revelation 20.10, Satan is sent to the lake of fire. Uh, Genesis 3.24, humans are kept from the tree of life. Revelation 22.14, God gives access to the tree of life. Are you with me? This is powerful. Powerful. Humans are banished from the garden paradise. Genesis 3.23. Revelation 22.14. They are free to enter the garden city. 
Genesis 3.15, a redeemer is promised. Amen. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, he who sits on the throne is God the Father and also who? God the Lamb, the redeemer who has redeemed us as a lamb of God. In Genesis chapter 6, there's evil continually. Uh, in Revelation 21, verse 27, there is nothing that defiles that's able to enter into the city. Genesis 3.15 promises a seed of the woman that would conquer and crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 22.16, Jesus identifies himself as the root and the offspring of David, became a man, became a human being as seed of the women. And Genesis 3.24, there are cherubim, angels guarding the tree of life. In Revelation 21.9, angels are inviting people to have access to God's glorious promises. Wow. Uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 2, we see the marriage between the first Adam and his bride. In the book of Revelation, we see the marriage between uh, the supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church, the, the last Adam and his bride. Uh, we see that restoration go with Adam and Eve through animal sacrifice. Well, we're restored through the ultimate sacrifice that those sacrifices pointed to, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We no longer return to dust. There is no more death. First evidence is this book, man. This book is amazing, okay? It's nothing like it. Show me one book like this book that's written by all these different authors over a span of 1,500 years. And this is just one evidence that is, has a unified message of redemption. Paradise lost, paradise found. What, who bridges the gap? The cross. God's message through Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ is death, burial, and resurrection. Amen? Amen. What an amazing book we have. Number two, the second evidence I want to look at is, man, and by the way, I'll just let you know, any, any of the evidence I'm going to be using through the series, we could do a series on just any one of them, not just a whole message. And we're not doing a whole message. We're just, I'm getting three in one. We do a whole series and several messages on one. Uh, but the next evidence I want to look at is manuscript evidence. Manuscripts. You ever hear people say, well, you know, uh, you know, Bible, that's just been translated and, and, you know, written and copied over and over and over again. It's kind of like the game of tele telephone. You know, you say something and then by the time it goes around the circle, it's totally different. So how could you really trust it? Because it's been copied and copied and copied and copied. Or they'll bring up some council and say, this council changed the Bible. And the council they'll bring up usually has nothing to do with the Bible, you know, as far as uh, ratifying certain books or what have you. So it's just kind of interesting. Uh, you, you see these arguments, and it's interesting because you know what God says in his word? He says he would preserve his word. He would keep it intact so that we would have his word and we'd have his message. And if he created the universe, do you think he's capable of that? obviously. In fact, in Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, it says, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver is tried in a furnace on earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation and forever. He said, and he promised that he would keep his word. He would preserve his word. Amen. And here we have it to this day. Oh, emperors and and, and uh, wicked men have tried to destroy it over and over again. Tried to do that in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. They, in, in, in China, there's pastors right now preaching the gospel that are being arrested. But God keeps his word free. He keeps it out there. He's preserved his word. Oh, but you know what? We don't know. How do you know it's just not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? Manuscript evidence, guys. It's evidence number two. I want, to, I want to take this a little bit slower than the last one because I want to get through everything today. But I want you to be able to really understand what's taking place here. The idea a lot of people have in the streets have is, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, there's no original autographs. Like the, the, the letter that was originally written doesn't exist. Well, try to find letters that originally exist from 2,000 years ago from antiquity. <laughs> it's not something that, uh, in fact, it's interesting. God had papyrus uh, used, which is well, pre was preserved a long time. It's like a bamboo kind of shoot that you find in swamps and you can turn it into paper and, and it lasts a lot longer than our paper. So God knew what he was doing and he did preserve his word. 
But as far as, as, far as looking at original autograph, we don't have original autographs of, of Plato, you know, of the Gallic Wars by Caesar or Herodotus the historian, you know, or Tacitus the historian in the first century. We don't have their original autographs. Yet you go to university and you learn what Tacitus taught or Herodotus or, or uh, what the Gaelic Wars are about with Caesar and, and rarely are they ever even questioned but they don't have a shred of manuscript evidence compared to what the Bible does. Think about that. In fact, it's really interesting because when we, first let's just talk about the Old Testament for a minute. And I wish I could spend the whole service just on the Old Testament. But they were so concerned, the scribes, about every jot and tittle. They took so seriously copying the words of the prophets that they would, every little jot and tittle, they, they, they couldn't mess with, you know? It was forbidden. They, they'd, write the word, they'd write the name of God, they'd get up the scribe, he'd go wash his hands because he wrote the word of God. They'd be so careful. That's mind-boggling. And you know what's crazy too? And there's a lot more tedious than I have time to get into. But I remember, uh, well, how do we know, you know, what was written by Isaiah was what's in like, say, the Masoretic text or, or the Septuagint or it's the same message. How do we know that? Well, guess what? The Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament, talking about the 1100s after Christ, the first like big, you know, full manuscript, close, you know, it's like, well, how do we know that matches what was said by Isaiah? But then there was this great discovery. Remember the Dead Sea Scroll discovery? <laughs> you know? And in 47 and in 48, when Israel became a nation, everybody's tripping out on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because you know what? There was a guy strolling, you know, and he's, you know, with his sheep or what have you. And there had to be a winter wonderland. And they were going higher up in the hills than they usually would often in the snow. And, and everything was changing and so forth. But this, there's a guy who throws a rock into a cave and he hits a pot. And he goes, it's not like something broke like a pot. He goes in there. He doesn't even know what he has. He finds the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these things were buried and written a couple hundred. They were written hundreds, a couple hundred years before Christ. And they're buried. And they discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then they... You have all of the book of Isaiah there. You have all kinds of books from the Old Testament there. And this was before Christ that they were buried or hidden in this cave. Well, all kinds of little caves everywhere. He just happens to... And guess what? God was saying, hey, check this out. I believe that was just a sovereign move of God. So, you know what? We went to the Dead Sea Scroll Museum in one of our trips to Israel. And we should do that again in our next trip to Israel. And it's shaped like a, the pottery that it was found in. The, the museum, you look at it, it's a trip. You go in it, and you know what? They have Isaiah, the whole scroll of Isaiah spread out into this glass case, it's like one long scroll, just, just spread out in a circular form under glass. And we could barely get to it because people are so squeezed in to see Isaiah. We finally worked our way. Anybody, who, is anybody on that trip with us? Raise your hand. That was pretty cool, Mark, huh? <laughs> Remember what we had Aria do? He read the original, that's right, Mark. We said, hey, Arie, because Arie is a Hebrew. He lived in the land all his life, fought in every Israeli war. And he was our tour guide, one of the best tour guides we've ever had by far, probably the best. He was amazing. Go, Arie, he's an older Jewish man, just really awesome guy. We go, Arie, I go, Arie, can you read the, the Hebrew from Isaiah 53? And he's like, because he's having to squeeze in. He starts reading it. And he's like, he's reading Isaiah 53 that we know, you know, right here in our Bible. And he goes, it's the same. Yeah, it is. You know, <laughs> so, you know, there's minor differences, uh, uh, there'll be minor differences in spellings and, and words and, and so forth, but the message has been preserved. Amen. That's an awesome reality, guys. So God preserves and promises to preserve his word and he does preserve his word. Now, what about the New Testament? Glad you, you asked. Well, maybe you would have asked. You know, uh, like the New Testament, the, the Old Testament scribes, the New Testament scribes were very careful as well. They would count the number of letters on a line and make sure they matched and so forth. And uh, now, like I said, there's so many manuscripts that there's going to be variations. But let's say everybody here, let's say I write some things on a chalkboard, right? Right? And I write like a, you know, a big, you know, three long paragraphs. And this is a class where you have to copy it, right? You ever have a class like that? You gotta copy everything that's written. Would some of you make mistakes? Yeah? 
no doubt. But how, but could you find out what, if I erase that original autograph, could you find out what I wrote by comparing your guys' text? Absolutely, because you're not all gonna make a mistake in the same exact space, amen? Same, same letter. In fact, that's gonna be a variation that you could weed out because that's an anomaly compared to all the other ones, right? You might have several, but they all can get fixed because you can compare all the different writings and the more you have, the better actually. Well, think about this, guys. Think of the evidence that we have when it comes to manuscript evidence. You've heard me quote over and over again through the years, uh, if you've been here for some time, the Roman historian Tacitus. I love to quote Tacitus because he speaks of the existence of the Lord Jesus Christ as a real person, and he was a contemporary of some of the apostles. He was alive in the first century, okay? And we have all this kind of evidence. So now it's virtually, virtually almost a no scholars will say, well, Jesus didn't exist. They wanted to say that in the past, but guess what? They can't say that now. So almost every scholar will say, yeah, of course Jesus existed. That evidence is there because you have secular historians and people like Josephus, another first century historian who talks about Jesus and, and, and Tacitus. But what's interesting when it comes to manuscript evidence is we have Tacitus's annals, okay? And you know when they were written? He wrote them about 100 AD. Think about that. He wrote them in 100 AD and guess what? The oldest manuscript we have, we don't have his original autograph, we don't have copies of what he wrote until you get to 850 AD. How much longer is that after he wrote it? 750 years. Oh, and guess how many copies we have? 50, 70? No, we only have two copies in antiquity of Tacitus' annals. But when you learn about what he wrote, we say Tacitus said, Tacitus said, and <laughs> rarely is it doubted that Tacitus wrote this or that. Isn't that interesting? But you don't just have Tacitus. You also have Herodotus, who is the historian who sometimes I quote as well. He's got some interesting quotations. Guess when he wrote? 1,200 years. I'm sorry. Guess when his closest manuscript is? 1,200 years after he wrote his original copy, which we don't have. But we'll talk about what this historian has said. Oh, and guess how many copies do we have? 40, 50, 70? No, we just have seven copies of, of his history, Herodotus' history. Seven copies, that's it. Oh, well, who else? A lot of guys. You know, uh, think, of, think of Homer, or you could think of, you could think of uh, Plato, right? And Plato's writings, it's kind of interesting because when I was looking at Plato, uh, Plato, he, he uh, you don't have, he, his writing, I, th I think, let me find the reference, it's 900 years later. Uh, Plato's dialogue, I'm sorry, is 1,200 years later. His dialogue's 1,200 years later, okay? And Plato's dialogue, there are seven copies of his dialogue. Seven copies of his dialogue. 12 years later, 1,200 years later, 12 would be really impressive, 1,200 years later, and we have his dialogue, and there's only seven copies. Herodotus's history, I'm sorry, was 1,300 years later, and there, there are nine copies in existence. Nine copies. But it's interesting. There's one that's better than these, and it's Caesar's, you know, Gaelic Wars. You've heard of Caesar, you know? We have his Gaelic Wars. 900 years later first copy. How many manuscripts? He's got more than all the other guys. I give him that. It's 900 years later is the first one. 900 years, that's, that's three, almost four times longer than we have been a nation, right? Before his first manuscript from his writings still exists. That's a long time, almost a millennium. And we have more than seven and nine and we have ten. Ten of his. Okay? Guess what? When you look at the Bible and its manuscripts, there's nothing like it in, in two respects. We've been talking about the amount of manuscripts they have and the dates. The dates are way later and the amount of manuscripts are minimal. And guess what? People, you'll learn about what these guys have said and what they taught and, 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 and college, university. And guess what? It's just, yeah, well, of course, these guys were, boom. Wow. But it comes to the Bible. Oh, you, you can't trust the Bible. It's probably copied over and over and over again. Yeah, you can't. Oh, no, no, no. Because you know what? A lot of people, they don't want to be, they don't want to submit to God. 
They don't even look at the evidence. But man, think about it, man. You have P52. <laughs> and I'm just going to say P52. P52 is a catalog number because there's so many biblical manuscripts. They have to catalog, 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 catalogize them. Is that a word? They ought to just put them all together. And P52 is the Gospel of John, part of the Gospel of John. Guess what? Uh, papyrologists, those who deal with the dates of papyrus, four of them were brought together, four experts that deal with papyrus to date the Gospel of John. And nobody, uh, the consensus is, yeah, this is, this is when this was written. You know when they date P52, or, which is part of the Gospel of John? One of the papyrologists said 90 AD. John, according to Irenaeus, or Polycarp, let's go back even to Polycarp, who was a disciple of John's, said he died in the 90s under the reign of Domitian. This guy dates the gospel, one of these papyrologists dates it at 90 AD. The late date they settle on, because he's working with other papyrologists there, guess what? 125. Nobody dated it later than 125 AD. So we say the conservative date, 125. It could be 90. But for the sake of argument, let's use the conservative date and say 125 AD, P52. Guess what? When did John write that thing? He could have wrote it in. When you look at John and you look at the book of Revelation, you look at the problems he's dealing with at Ephesus at the end of his life, that suggests to me he wrote it later. Than the, and it's already meant, most scholars believe he wrote it later than the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that shows me that the Gospel of John is not 750, not 9 or 12 or 1,300 years later, but maybe 10, 20, or at the latest 50 years later than when John wrote it. Is that crazy? And by the way, they don't just have two manuscripts as a witness like Tacitus had, or seven, right? Or nine, or 10. Caesar had 10, wow. Guess what? Guess how many manuscripts? Just of the manuscripts that are in Greek, you're talking almost 6,000. But when you take into account not just Greek, but you take Latin, Egyptian, Coptic, and the manuscripts in Armenian, there are over 25,000 ancient manuscripts beginning closer to the approximate time than any of these other ones and having more dwarfing it, just dwarfing these other manuscripts. Can I hear a praise the Lord or hallelujah? You know? That just blows me away. Do you, do you see why I'm excited about sharing today? I'm excited every time I share because I love the Lord. You guys love the Lord. I'm sharing with people that love the Lord. So every time we get together, it's a good time. But man, that is powerful, guys. So next time, I say, well, how do you know it's not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? You know, just, pre just remember if you took notes or just, you know, go and listen to this tape again or do your own research and just write down a couple points that you, because I'd like to be able to share and share with the person I'm sharing with on the streets. Well, how do you know it's not a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? By the way, what's really cool too is the early church fathers. Do you know the liberals? You said, well, these things probably weren't written until a couple hundred years after the fact. Man, they got egg all over the face because then people, they didn't even know what they're talking about because we already had some of the early church fathers translated and the early church fathers were quoting the Bible left and right and quoting these manuscripts in the second century and part of the early, or latter part of the first century, some of them. So much so that you can put all the rays of the early church fathers together and you don't even have to get a manuscript of the Bible, you can put the whole Bible together. Do you know that from all the quotations? So they had egg all over their faces. So... And you know, it makes sense. Well, how did God do that? How did he get so many manuscripts? Well, praise God, man, the gospel was spreading all over the earth, right? And their Christians were copying them and copying them. And the great thing is, is we can go back and look at manuscripts in the, you know, manuscript evidence of second and third century, and it's just replete, you know? But listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, Talk about the letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, verse 16. When it's been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 
And see, see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul was wanting his letters to spread out. And guess what? Christians are like, you need to get it. You don't have a copy of Colossians? Boom. And guess what? Like a class where all kinds of people are, are writing something, writing what's written, you can compare their, their, that's what they do when they look at manuscript evidence and come to, can come to conclusion what the ultimate truth was. And guess what's really cool? is you don't have all these weird variations in doctrines when you look at these different manuscripts, when you look at biblical manuscripts. And yeah, you can have a word vary here and there, but God made sure that we all know who Jesus Christ is, amen? amen? We all have the apostolic witness. We all know that we're sinners. We all know his plan. We have the book of Revelation. We have the different books of the Bible. So we know how to get saved, how to walk with God, how to know him. And we have the word of God, amen? I just got the 15-minute warning. I'm glad it's just not a two-minute warning. So, man, I want to keep going on this. Uh, but guess what? I need to move on, huh? So, can you see why I wanted, we could do, spend a, a message or more on each of these proofs, but we're not uh, going to do that. Uh, praise God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but what? My words will never pass away. Checkmate, amen? Praise God. The third proof I want to look at today to show that his words are faithful and true, and he is the faithful and true witness, is we looked at the unity of the Bible. We looked at the manuscript evidence for the Bible. Now we're looking at the uniqueness of the Bible. The uniqueness of the Bible. The Bible is unique because as God breathed, and it is his word, and it's a reflection of who he is, which would, is why it's so different. When you can do comparative religion in the Ain world, Ain is A-N-E, cap, all caps, A-N-E, ancient Near Eastern world, and the world around the Ain world, you see their beliefs are all very, very similar. Pretty much they you know, all believe in many gods and so forth, and they worship idols and so forth. But guess what, man? The God of the Bible is altogether different. Altogether different. So now we're looking at the uniqueness of God and the God of, or, and, and the Bible. And from the very beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, well, how is that different? That's big time different because guess what? God creates everything out of nothing. Amen? He creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth. The first thing he makes is this canvas where there's darkness and it's empty, Right? And his spirit is hovering over the water that he created. And then he takes this canvas and he gives this powerful story of redemption, which we don't have time to get into, all this typology, all this power, which makes me just bow before him like, Lord, no one can do this because there's all kinds of stuff there people still are discovering, you know. And guess what? The first principle, the first one existing is God and his spirit. Amen. He creates the universe, Elohim. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through Christ, all things are made, and the Spirit of God is then hovering over the deep, and then he starts to form it all. How is that different? Well, that is big time different because, first of all, the science up until, which wasn't really science, of course, but Einstein himself said, well, the, the universe has always been here. I wrote that lie uh, when I was writing songs by the power of demons. One of my lines was, nothing never was, always ever is. Like everything always existed. That was a lie. And Einstein said his biggest blunder was believing the steady state theory. That everything just existed for eternity past. That way you didn't need a God. But then guess what? He looked through the Hubble telescope. He came to the same conclusion other scientists were coming to at that time because they were seeing that the universe was expanding rapidly and therefore it had to have been wound up and it had to have a beginning. And then Einstein, like other scientists, said there is a beginning. Before there was time and space and matter, there was nothing. But the problem is, is how do you get everything out of nothing? I can show you scientist after scientist after scientist after scientist, including Richard Dawkins, who said, nothing made everything. He says, don't ask me how to explain it because it's hard to explain. <laughs> yeah, you bet it is. You don't have a clue. That can't, it's impossible. It's not a scientific impossibility. In fact, you can't have life unless you first have life. Any life that comes into existence has to have had previous life. The only way a life could exist and not have come into existence is if it already existed. 
The Bible says God is from everlasting to everlasting. But the, God, the Bible shows that God created the universe. So now you know what, scientists? I've got great quotes from leading scientists, you know, from NASA and others say that, wow, this new, the new cosmology matches what the Bible says. Who would have thought it? That there was nothing and then there was creation, everything. How is this different than the other gods that existed in the Ain world, ancient Near East? Far different. Because all of these gods, guess what? They were part of the matter. They kind of come out of matter and they're part of the whole system. They don't create everything. But God, by the way, how did he create everything on nothing? Because God is full of power, man. He's full of power. But, but it's hard to get my brain around how could he always exist? Well, they didn't have a hard time believing the universe always existed. They believe that until they're proven wrong. So if you could believe that, you could believe that there's a creator. Otherwise, you have two options, really. Nothing made everything, which is an absolute impossibility, or an all-powerful created creator made everything. That makes way more sense. And it's biblical, and it's, you know, life begets life. Biogenesis, a lot, a lot of different laws uh, support that. Uh, this proves that Jesus is the faithful witness. Uh, now, it's interesting, and I've got to get through a bunch of them real quick because to show you the uniqueness of the Bible. What's interesting is God, the God of the Bible says he's the one true God. Throughout the Ain world in the ancient Near East, they believed in many, many gods. The great Shema of Israel that's recited over and over again by Jews is Hebrews or Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Amen. There's, there's only one God. Very unique. Monotheism instead of polytheisms. Uh, polytheism. The pagans around them believed in many gods. Uh, the, the uniqueness of the God of the Bible and what the Bible teaches about God is his transcendence. He is altogether separate from his creation. He makes his creation. The, the pagans believed in panentheism or pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that, that everything is God and, every, and there's all kinds of gods and everything is God, you know, which is a lie. We've got a real problem if everything's God because then God's a sinner because we're all sinners that we need his grace, amen? amen? God's distinct from his creation. That's when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's transcendent. What we call in theology, he's ontologically unique. He's ontologically his, in his own class of being, which is mind-boggling. Oh, and guess what else? You would go into a, the Jewish temple, and guess what you'd find? It's what you wouldn't find that's really interesting, too. You went in a pagan temple, is what you see everywhere. All kinds of different gods. Or you'd go to this pagan temple, then the next pagan temple, they would have all kinds of different gods in different temples. The Athenians, as one, uh, as one philosopher said, they had more they had more gods than they had people. Crazy. But guess what? But they, were made, they made idols. They'd, they'd bow down to icons and reverence them. Guess what? You go into God's temple, he said, do not make a graven image of me. I cannot be likened to creation. You, went, you, would, you could not find an image of God anywhere. Because he says, that's not me. He's not the product of man's hand. The man's hand, hands can't make a, a picture of him to be worshipped. Amen? So different. So someone says, well, kind of the Bible, you know, the, the Jews, they kind of evolved from other religions. Really? It's altogether different than the Ain. Oh, there, but there's a lot of similar moral laws, yeah. That's why, because God's given us a conscience. Amen? That's why most people believe it's wrong to, to rape and, and, and to murder and to steal and so forth, you know, because it's written on our hearts. So yeah, there'll be similarities in moral laws. And God is working within the, the purview of a world that has all kinds of laws when he invades that world. The God of the Bible is revealed. The, the Bible reveals God to be supra-sexual. Not super-sexual. Supra, C-S-U-P-R-A. That means he doesn't have breasts, doesn't have a penis. God is spirit and hath not, as Jesus said, hath not flesh and blood, Okay. God became a man in the person of Christ, but God is God in his essence, God the Father, the, the Son, before the Word becomes flesh, the Spirit, they're not even physical beings until God becomes a man. Sexless, neither male nor female. God says, I, I remember a hairdresser I was talking to, she's kind of a younger believer in the Lord, and she's like, Joe, she goes, I was talking to my hairdresser, and she's saying God is a woman. I'm like, God's not a woman, he's a man. I go, sister, I go, God's not a man either. The Bible says, God says, I'm not a man that I should lie. Amen? 
God became a man in the person of Christ. But God is altogether different than his creation. So it's just, uh, just mind-boggling. Uh, pagan gods weren't sovereign. They would fight other gods and they would lose or win, depending, you know, and they would go through certain things and, and they didn't have total control of every molecule and everything on the planet and everything in the universe. The God of the Bible does. Uh, humanity had no real significance in, with regard to pagan gods. Why? They could care less about pagan gods or humans, typically. They were their playthings. If you look at mythology, you look at Greek and Roman and Germanic and Norse, you know, Norse mythology and all these things, humans are their playthings. They don't care about them. And just, there's they're, this weird, the, I mean, even the Egyptians, a tomb that, you know, got in a fight with chaos. And he's in this fight and he starts crying tears and his tears, they drop to the earth and each tear, when it hits the dust, becomes a human being. We're just tears, you know. Just ridiculous stuff, guys. You don't have a very, and, and this one blows me away. I didn't write this one down. But guess what? Everything is cyclical with their writings and just keeps repeating itself. With the Bible, history is linear and it has its culmination. And that blows me away because all the ain't society, everything's just cyclical. It keeps getting repeated. God has a definite beginning there is to this, our existence, and an end and a consummation and so forth. Uh, uh, free will. It's basically an illusion. Everything is determined in the pagan, ancient pagan religions and free will is just apparent and so forth when a Christianity is real. In the Ain world, the ancient Near Eastern religions all around Israel, uh, you know what? There was no objective morality. It was just how you felt about something. So your opinion was as good as the next person's opinion. So morality could be anything, but people would agree on certain things, but guess what? They couldn't objectively say this is right and this is wrong. Why? Because guess what? Their gods are the product of matter. Everything just already exists and they come on the scene. They're not the uncreated creator of all things like the one true God who gives us an objective ruler to say this is right and wrong because you may, I made you in my image and you're personable and things matter. And that's why you feel really bad when you do wrong and you feel really good when you do what's right. Uh, <laughs> the, the, some of these things are just, you don't even think about, but God, the biblical God is good. He's a good God. He's faithful and he's true. He's a good God. I missed that last sign, bro. Was that a five or 10? That was a five. Oh, Lord, God, help me. <laughs> uh, God is good. Give you a couple examples. We'll race through the last few real quick, but listen carefully. Guess what? Think of the pagan gods. Think of God, the God of the Bible. He, he's good. He's faithful. He's true. Guess what? The pagan gods, look at the top Greek God, Zeus. He's a rapist. He rapes his own family members. Okay? He's a fornicator. He's a sneaky, devilish kind of God. He's a chief God of, of, the, of, the, of the Greeks. You know, that's not the biblical God. Our God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's true. The Bible, the biblical God, he's full of grace. He's full of love. He's full of truth. He's slow to anger. See, the, the, their God's changed. The biblical God, I didn't even write that down. The change one just come to my mind. There's all kinds of things I didn't even write down, but our God doesn't change. Their gods are fickle. They might be in a bad mood. They might be in a good mood. They might decide to do this. And they do something totally different. This God is faithful and true. And guess what? He's, he's full of grace and love. The Bible says God is love. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's over and over in the Old Testament. More than, in fact, I don't find a verse in the Bible in the New Testament that says God is slow to anger and full of loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness. There's all kinds of verses that are even blow that, that away in a way when it describes what God is or that God is love. But that's just over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Their gods are full, full of, I mean, you look at pagan gods, look at them. They're oftentimes, they're just got, they got blood dripping from them. They've got fangs and they're just like demonic. The Bible says the gods of the nations are demons, okay? Oh, sometimes they come as angels of light. Man, there's so many of these. Hey, if you're taking notes or you just want to just write something down and you're not taking notes, here's a few really good books on this subject that I've got all three of these books and they're all very beautiful, helpful books. One is by, called God's Rivals by a guy named McDermott. By a guy named McDermott, God's Rivals. I can't spend too much time re reading all this, but I'm just going to say it pretty quick. The other one, which I love this one, it's called The Bible Among the Myths by John Oswalt. Okay? By John Oswalt. Chad has had him on a, in, an interview. You can check out that interview. He's an amazing scholar. Great, great, great Isaiah scholar, by the way. Uh, the other one that I have written down for you, which I have, which I think that's great, it's called The Gospel and the Greeks. The Gospel and the Greeks by Ronald Nash. 
these books all explore this, and I'm indebted to these, these books because there's so much good information that goes way beyond what I'm able to in this message on this particular subject. But praise the Lord, you guys. The greatest thing is this Bible, you know, God preserved it. It's one unified book. It's one unique book, and the manuscript evidence divorces any other writings from antiquity by far and away. No reason to doubt this message, but all the reasons way beyond what I've given to celebrate this book, God's Word. Amen? Praise God. Can we all please stand as they pass out the cup and the bread? How many?